Great day for baseball, Mr. Reese. A little on the warm side. Yes, it is. When I woke up this morning, I thought it was May rain. Looks like it for a while. Here's the card on fastball, but for the first time it's high. Saturday. Welcome to episode number 59 of the BBA Today. I am Ron Collins. I am the general manager of the Yellow Springs Nine, and I am joined as always by the general manager of Nobody, Mr. Nobody. I like that term. Um, Ted, general manager of Nobody Schmidt. I, I like that. I would I would prefer not to be referred to as Mr. Nobody. That's a little hurtful. <laughs> <very cool>. um, <laughs> Well, I guess I'm, I I get to be the bad GM, and you get to be Mr. Nobody. How's that? Oh, that's fine, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do we have today? Let's talk about the, the first big news I saw this morning as I looked on the forum. Is um, It seems clear now that Wichita, after teasing the uh, teasing the moment, seems like they are getting ready to move to El Paso. I thought that was kind of interesting, big news around the league it struck me that we have not had a ton of movement. We've had a little bit. We had, when I first came into the league and took over Yellow Springs, kind of within that short period, we had uh, Havana moved to San Fernando. We had Tucson moved to Long Beach. We had uh, even Halifax moved to Indiana. I think uh, Halifax had just moved to Indianapolis, I think, before then. I can't remember where they whether that worked through. We had Greenville go to Jacksonville. So when I came into the league, there was quite a bit of movement, and then we really didn't see much actual relocation until the expansion. Uh, Omaha went to Mexico City, and um, Justin took Indiana to slide into Omaha's old slot. And then, of course, during the last realignment, we had Huntsville uh, move to Chicago with Vinny Vitale. So ultimately, during that first year or two that I was here, we had four or five big moves really quick. And then we just had kind of little bits and pieces. This is the first time uh, in a little while that we've seen an actual move. What's your first thought? Neither one of those is the most, like, is a very exciting town if you don't know anything about them. You know, I, I will miss the Wichita Aviators logo. I think it's a nice looking logo. Their uniforms always felt a little college-y to me. They're just, it's a lot of shoulder stuff and angled lettering. And I don't know, they just, they felt kind of, I don't know. They didn't feel like a pro baseball uniform. Uh, and I, if you wanted to ask me what the difference is between like a pro uniform and a college uniform, I don't think I could articulate it, but I know it when I see it. But I like the color scheme and, you know, Wichita hasn't really done anything to establish itself as a, you know, oh, it'd be weird to not have a team in Wichita, like it, whatever. But then El Paso doesn't get me really excited either. You know, El Paso's just from, a, again, from a person who doesn't know anything about it. I know all of the West Texas jokes. I know that Juarez, while it's doing a whole heck of a lot better than it was, 10 real life years ago is still not the greatest city in the entire world. And El Paso suffers from that somewhat spent a little bit of time today reading some Wikipedia stuff about El Paso to see if I could figure out anything positive to say. And I don't, I don't have a whole lot. It's just kind of another uh, American town. So the, where Nigel goes with the branding and stuff will be interesting. I think there's some good things. There are some historical Recton wall league precedents. The global baseball consortium had a team in El Paso that was the border hounds. Oh, I did not know that. Um, but I would stay away from anything border related if I was Nigel, just for this time. 
or being <laughs> team, maybe not the best. It's just not the best subject matter anyway. Yeah, I thought it was uh, interesting. You know, El Paso uh, is a city that could be used to leverage lots of things, but it, it fits on that question of of Mexican heritage and U.S. heritage in the mix. You know, it's, uh, it's, it is right there on the border. You know, I think uh, one Hawaii's general manager in the world. You got, as far as branding stuff, you got one of the most famous rivers in the world. Oh, yeah. There's um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that could be, it could be made uh, quite exciting. Um, yeah. And um, actually, one of the things that strikes me is I think that uh, Hawaii general manager James Walker is actually located in El Paso. And uh, actually, as I recall from our uh, general manager's quarter, um, conversation uh, was a part of the border guard there was part of the border patrol so he would be an interesting uh, person maybe for maybe he might have some things that he can leverage for nigel <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, I, to help bring some flavor of the city into that it could be interesting especially in the in the american southwest but i would but i would say that almost any region actually not especially any any city in this country almost any city in the world of any size has is going to have some sort of rich cultural history just in terms of things that you can bring up and as far as from a playing standpoint el paso is it's high desert depending on how you set stuff up the ball's going to fly out of there yeah, so it could could be interesting from that standpoint and the other thing you know and you kind of mentioned this before but i'm going to steal your thunder because i'm talking right now and i'm just going to steal what you said before the show this is the right time right for for wichita to move to el paso um they have largely solved many of the financial issues that they had so they're not going to like be moving with a bunch of dead horrible contracts on the books the, the maldonado one is a little ugly but that's about it they should be in a position to take advantage of the kind of revenue bump that they're going to get from this move um so the timing is pretty good i would say yeah i think that that's uh, completely true and you're always free to to steal any pieces of things that we talk about before the show because was, you know right, I, I always yeah. steal them from you too yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah i think that 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 is a way to look at this, I was going to say the right way to look at this. There's a billion ways of looking at this. Um, you know, Wichita and Nigel has been very clear and, and it's obvious that he has had some financial issues to deal with, uh, after Stu, you know, Stu brought the team into the league as an expansion club, had a couple of moderately successful years and actually looked like he was trying to kind of build a, a win a win-now team, and he almost pulled it off. But when it didn't come to fruition, that kind of left things in a shambles for Nigel, and he has spent a couple of years working on that. Looks like he might have that back into some into a box anyway. And I guess one of the things that's going through my mind, I'm interested in your in your take on it, is you know the use the in-game use right uh, i i do like I, I like el paso i think that's an interesting city to to move into but beyond that the metagame part of this uh, the bba rules right a good opportunity to this is the right time when i say the right time this is a good opportunity to uh, bump that uh, fan loyalty to get some interest going the market size can get uh, can get moved up by that. I think that's why I think this is the right time for this move. If you're going to move, you might as well do it now, I suppose. Now, that having been said, 
and I will eventually allow you to answer my question. <laughs> I will Port. eventually do that. Will but you that ask a question said, eventually? Um, I'm getting your general viewpoint of, of the gaming, of the game aspect of it, right? I will say that for my personality, I would probably not want to make that move because I would be trying to build without, uh, without that uh, actual rule bump. But uh, what's your take on the on the value that Wichita is going to get from a from a fan interest and stadium standpoint? What how, how much of a boost do you think that is for Wichita right now? You know, I, I really don't know enough in terms of analysis to tell you, you know, because the, the biggest issue is what it comes down to. All of those things, they turn into revenue, right? Like that's that's the, the end result of all of that. I would I don't know the numbers enough to, to give you an idea of how much revenue they're going to get out of this. I would expect short term it might be in the 15 to 20 mil range, just depending on how because Nigel should be able to take advantage of basically all of those extra you know, ticks that are in the constitution for requirements for moving. Um, right. And that should work out pretty well. So he should get a pre and some of that stuff translates directly into revenue. So he should get um, a pretty, pretty big revenue bump out of this. Initially, the question always becomes, you know, can you maintain that because fan loyalty and fan interest are transient. And if you look at what they are in Wichita right now, they're not particularly good. And, Again, I don't know the history of this well enough to be confident in these statements, but I would imagine when that team came into the league, the fan loyalty and fan interest were higher than they currently are. Typically, expansion franchises come in with at least yes. decent fan interest, maybe not the yes. loyalty. So, you know, we, the, and I, this isn't a, well, and it's me saying, and it's Nigel's fault that they're so bad. That's not what I'm saying at all, but there, we've seen what happens. The reason I bring it up is that's the erosion that happens when you have financial problems and you lose players and you don't win games. And so if you move a team, you also, if you want to take advantage of that, you need to start winning. You know, if you, if you move a team and you don't have to immediately start winning, you've probably got a season or two, a grace period. But if you go two, three seasons, you probably just spent a whole bunch of participation points in cash to move a team and gotten nothing for it. Except for maybe a market size increase, which, you know, that's a nice thing to have all the time. So I I think that what was your question? No. <laughs> I, I think no, that he'll fine. get he'll get a nice nice revenue bump from this and and leveraged correctly. Um, you know, their payrolls in the upper sixty million right now, and some of that's coming off the books. You know, you get uh, Dwayne Whitley Juniors coming off the books, so there's another fourteen or fifteen million. And, you know, maybe they'll get lucky and Maldonado will opt out. I, I doubt it. But or if they can do something with that money, they'll, you're, you're talking, you're still talking about a team that's maybe going to have a, a budget in the hundred plus million range with um, a payroll in the 50 million range. And I would say that this is one of those times when I wouldn't mind overpaying in free agency. Now, not a lot, and I'm not saying overpay and make bad deals. Don't go sign, you know, 33-year-old players for six years at $20 million a year. But, you know, we had some of those 27-year-olds in free agency this last time around that are, you know, star players that maybe you're thinking, oh, yeah, but I, do I want to give this 28-year-old player $6 million at 20 or six years at $20 million a year when I know those end those back-end years aren't going to be so good? Maybe this is the time when you do that. 
Wichita doesn't have a lot of players that are going to get expensive in arbitration right away. Um, so if you front loaded a bunch of contracts on guys like that, where you don't have to worry about those back three years, but you know, you overpay big time right now just to get some winning players on the roster and get some, keep that fan interest going, um, boost your revenue for a couple of years while you build up. This might be the time. Yeah. No, I definitely think this is a time, and I read it uh, between the lines. I read it as Nigel saying, "Okay, guys, I'm out of the uh, out of the major mire, and I'm going to try to uh, step up." You know, he's he took over a team, and I, I like your point. This is not to say uh, Nigel did, has done anything wrong. Nigel took over a team that was a dumpster fire on, uh, I think, I, I won't say on purpose. Because uh, that sounds like Stu was tanking. Stu was not tanking. Stu made a decision. He was going to try to win. Uh, he had won in the 70s and 79s and, and was looking at that last year. If he had taken that step up, some of the, he made some big player acquisitions. And if he had actually taken steps up, then that would have been a accelerant into uh, you know, fan interest would have been good. You're right. They were at 100 for a period of time. They had edged down into the low 80s and 70s when Stu put all his chips in. And when the when the bet when he got the bad beat, when the when the bet didn't go well, uh, Nigel was left with not a lot to work with. Right. <laughs> um, so the proof will be in the pudding. It it looks like uh, Nigel's team is going to make some money this year. And when they move through the uh, through into El Paso, I think a lot of their minor leagues are are in Triple A and Double A, and they're kind of ready to show up. Uh, I like your thoughts. I'm guessing I, I agree with you. I guess I would guess that uh, Nigel will jump into the free agent market either this year or next uh, fairly heavily. And if he, um, this might be a time where overpaying a little bit in free agency is not a bad idea. We'll just see how the numbers go. I'm really interested. I'm intellectually intrigued by what this move is going to do for Wichita, and I, I like the, uh, I like the fundamental timing of the move. I thought that was, I thought that was. Do you agree good. that if you overpay, you overpay in front load? Did you? Yes. You know, it's the because yes. that, that's a a uh, corollary of the idea that there's no such thing as a bad one-year contract. You know, if you look at a multiple-year contract and you pay overpay in the first year so that you can write pay or underpay in the future years, that's actually a potentially benefit, especially, you know, Nigel is not going to go from a 60-win team to a 85-win team in one year, almost certainly. I mean, technically it's possible, but... So if he looks at it and says, you know, 2045 is my move year, I'm really going to get my fan interest going and I'm going to win some games, but I don't care whether I make the playoffs or not, then, yeah, I throw a big number in the first year and you know, with the hopes that you're getting a good team, a good player for, you know, three or four years. And then maybe your budget goes up again next year because you made some money and you can do another one of those front load and roll out. And next thing you know, you've got three players on your roster over three years that you're uh, at the top of the division. Let's go back to what we initially said here with this, the timing of this move. Is this the right time to make this move then? Because what we've kind of established here is if you really want to take advantage of the revenue increase that you get from moving, you got to start winning, right? And you don't necessarily start have to winning divisions, but you have to 
I wouldn't want to risk a multi-year sub-500 team right after a move. I feel like you might wipe out a lot of your gains really quickly. I guess the question, is this maybe one year too soon? Does, if you were, I, I get the aesthetic of, okay, you know, we're down in the dumps. We're pretty bad. Um, we've kind of hit rock bottom. Let's move and start going up. Like that's aesthetically pleasing. But do you want to maybe try to get to, you know, 65 wins before you move? You know, do you want to not, you know, do you want to move two years after rock bottom? <laughs> as opposed yeah, that's to. A, that's an interesting question because there's two paths, right? The, I mean, there is risk with any, anytime you make a move like this, there's going to be risk. The question is, where do you want to take your risk? I can make an argument that next year might be less risky, but I can also make an argument that if you don't move this year, you risk another year in Wichita with a sub-60 fan interest, and you just can't make revenue to be able to afford those one-year deals. <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, fair. Yeah, yeah. You know, so ultimately, that's that is uh, the game's uh, theory strategy of when to make this move. I think either this year or next year is the right answer, and I don't care which one you choose. You probably are, you know, you're taking a risk on, uh, you're taking a negative risk, positive risk, either direction. I do think that two years ago would have been the wrong time. Yeah, right? absolutely, right. I do think last year would have been the wrong time. I think the window opens at this point, and you know. Uh, good on Nigel for saying, "Hey, I'm I'm going to make this happen." I don't I don't know which one is best. That's the one of the great things I think about the conversation on relo on the relocation aspect of the BBA is uh, it's not arithmetic. It's not one plus one equals two. It's there's this high ordered calculus probability. He's putting his chips in. It's going to work or it's not going to work. And he can affect that to some degree because if he makes the, in quotes, right moves, whatever those are, that increases the probability of success. If he makes the wrong moves, whatever those are, that decreases the probability of success. <laughs> that's the fun of the game. You know, that's the, uh, if you knew what was going to happen, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Um, yeah, Good well, question. I though. think those are all, those are all fair. It'll be, this will be fun to watch play out. I wish Nigel the best because Wichita has been kind of a sad franchise, so that is true. Well, let me ask. Let me um, going back into the events of the uh, recent past. Uh, I was interested. Uh, Matanabu Yashimita, Yashimita, Yamashita, again, Indiana, Kentucky boy trying to pronounce Japanese names. Matanubu Yamashita. Uh, Boise's just signed him to a one-year deal, uh, bypassing a year of arbitration. I think. $8 million, it's a fairly pricey one-year deal. Um, but I like, uh, I wanted to talk about Yamashita just a little bit because he's an interesting case to me. Get, get your flavor for him. He's a 9-8-1-1-10 player. So no power, no walks, fundamentally. Still a three-war player, so he's this weird edge guy to me. Um, um, well, no home run power, right? Because we have to... He's a yes. pretty important distinction between between the type this this particular type of player. I'm getting ahead of myself. I will let you finish. No, no, thank you. You're right you're right. you're exactly. I, we have not actually uh, talked about this beforehand, but I can already tell you're on the same vibe that I'm on. So go ahead, go forward on that uh, line of thought. Don't get ahead of yourself. Go right through. Yeah. Jump so in. The the difference. I actually don't have a huge problem with him. He's not my type of player, but 
I just like guys that walk and hit home runs, you know, but uh, he's still very, very good. And, and the difference between him and the types of players I don't like is his gap power. If he was nine, seven, two, two, 10, probably a totally different guy. Uh, this is, you know, Yamashita has been hitting 50 doubles a year and adding 10 triples to that. That is, you know, that's, that's a big, big deal. If that's 30 doubles and five triples, which you would think is probably what you'd get out of like seven gap. Um, again, the seven, seven gap can be a lot of things. Like seven gap could be 25 doubles. Seven gap could be 45 doubles. Like the, the amount of double power you get in the seven gap range is really variable. But by the time you get to eight, um, you know, you have really good gap power. And that's, that's what makes all the difference in the world for this guy. You know, I, I've never been entirely clear on how much, and maybe you know a little bit more because you're a gap power guy, but maybe you know a little bit more about how the speed rating plays into the fulfillment of the gap power potential. Uh, but I would imagine that it has something to do with it. The fact that he's an 11 base runner and 10 speed is one of the reasons he's able to get so much out of that high contact and gap power. So this is, this is a fine player. I think the danger in this player is that you can see this in, or you can dream about this in some of those, you know, Eight contact, six gap, two, three home run, three I, eight ABK, and and that there's a world of difference between that guy and this guy. So I I, I like him, you know. This is the the contract itself is just a buying out of an arb year, um, so there's not a whole lot of excitement in that. But yeah, I don't know that there's a lot of excitement in it, but I will say, but he's and a, I have no idea what is going through Joe's mind on that, but. Um, you know, the, this question of when I look at Yamashita and I think about extensions, um, when I look at some of my, you know, because I've, I've spent almost all of this actual BBA season thinking about how do I extend my guys or do I extend my guys? Which guys do I extend and not extend because I'm in this really tight box? So that's where my brain is at when I look at Yamashita. And I, I think that the if if Joe was making the decision about whether to extend Yamashita for five years or four years or whatever the number he would get versus buy out his one year of arbitration, I think the buy out the one year of arbitration was a fantastic uh, decision. Uh, it might be a little bit overpriced. I don't know where his ARB projection was, but buying one year of Yamashita I'm going to I'm going to sidecar off of or piggyback onto your comment, because, yes, to me, the thing that separates Yamashita is that gap power. The fact that he is a a above average, well above average, probably upper third defensive shortstop adds a value also without any question. Right. But offensively, he is an above average player because of that gap power which is intellectually interesting because he goes against this whole uh, modern day view, uh, kind of pre, pre-modern pre day with Moneyball, you know, walks are super important versus today's um, viewpoint of home runs, you know, give me the three run home run. I mean, here's a player who has none of that, right? And is still an offensive value because of his, uh, gap power. If he were purely a slap singles hitter, his, yeah, he'd be a, a sub offensive player, but that gap power makes a huge difference for him. And yes, I am a gap guy. I like Yamashita as an example because 
Um, he's one of those edge cases. You used the term edge case several times, and I like that. He's one of those edge cases where if his gap power was only a six, he would probably not be an offensive force at all, but as it is, he is. I do think that his speed and stealing makes a difference. I think gap power inside the game, the way I interpret gap power is what is the likelihood you put gap power together with speed and probably base running, uh, multiply those all together in some weird amalgam that whatever Marcus does in Out of the Park and uh, apply that to how many singles does this guy hit and how many of them then does he turn into doubles. Um, I think that that's um, the way that it probably works, but I I have zero <laughs> basis on that. But anyway, bottom line is I worry – what I worry about Yamashita for is – at 25, what's he going to look like at 28? Right. right. If he erodes any infield range, he'll still be a plus second baseman, so that's probably okay. But if he erodes a little contact or if he erodes a little speed, it, you know, does he – he's one of those guys that while you can see the performance right now, you could also see how a very, very small adjustment to his underlying ability could cause that yes. to implode. Um, yes, if he drops that gap power a little bit offensively, he becomes a detriment, in which case he must hold on to his fielding ratings to be a positive. If he moves, um, if he keeps the ability to play shortstop at an elite level, then perhaps you'd still see him valuable, even if that gap drops to seven or six, right? If it drops to four or five, then he's then he's a, a big gaping hole in your order <laughs> let me ask you because you pay more attention to it than i do does gap power tend to erode i know that home run power tends to stick around um a little longer does gap power erode I, my impression has always been it's kind of contact and fielding and speed first but yeah i don't think gap power erodes as quickly as quickly as things like babip and uh perhaps uh avoid k uh, i'd have to go back and relook at my charts. It's been a long time since I looked at individual dev curve kinds of things. <clears throat> so I don't think that he's a great concern on the developmental side. I think where I'm more concerned actually is his injury history suggests yeah. that he may lose something uh, in that sense. So this all boils together. Whether this was directly on Joe's mind or not, I look at Yamashita and think, boy, I really like him right now, but I'm worried about his long-term risk. So I would much prefer to buy him out one year at a time for another year or two if I could. And that just is, if you look at it that way, by the time he's 27, you have a better flavor for whether you, you may get, if you want to keep him on your team for three or four years, you might get a much better deal a couple of years from now than you will right now. That's a good point, too. You know, the the other thing you mentioned briefly that I kind of wanted to touch on was, you know, you, you were talking about the evolution in real life baseball in terms of evaluation of talents and marketing efficiencies and that kind of stuff, where early on it was looking at walk rates and now we're looking at you know, taking the three run homer over other stuff. The difference, I would say, between real life and what I've noticed in OTP, although maybe they model it better than I think I do, is that. There is no such thing as a consistent 50 double hitter in real life. Doubles are weird. There's a huge fluctuation in double rate from year to year, even among consistently good power hitters, uh, simply because the difference in what a ball 
you know, how many of those doubles were just barely not home runs before, or how many of those doubles were quote unquote hustle doubles and the ball right. didn't land exactly where it needed. You know, it's kind of like doubles are line drives a lot of the time. And, you know, if you want to look at something that fluctuates a lot, you look at line drive rate, right? So that might be a spot that you can exploit a little bit of in a, like a difference between real life and video game baseball is that uh, that power's pretty steady in OTP. And um, so you might be able to look at a guy who hits 50 doubles and say, you know, that's that's a real thing that I can count on. Whereas in real life, that absolutely is not. So, you know, just, just a little bit of a difference in, in the flavor of things there. Yeah, uh, I think that's a, a fair way to think about it or an interesting way to think about it, right? The the um, way that a real-life um, baseball player creates doubles, there are multiple ways of doing that, and um, out of the park has to find a way to do that with some sense of realism. And like I said, in my brain, and again, I have zero direct insight into this, but in my brain, the way they do that is some amalgam of gap power, speed, and base running, right. which does make some sense um, if you equate gap power to, like, line drive hitting. But even then, that discounts the aspect of, you know, I mean, it's possible, I suppose, I've never thought about this, that out of the park would look at um, at conversion of a home run into a double if it's in a different ballpark. I don't know whether they do that. That's uh, interesting. I never even actually asked myself that question. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't know either. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's the, I, this, these are the fun games I like to play when you look at like, yeah. uh, and, and you are right. I am a, I am a gap kind of guy. I believe there is value in gap. I know a lot of, I know some general managers, I shouldn't say a lot. I know some general managers have said they discount gap and every time I hear that, I think, well, that there's an advantage I have. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I used the to be one the of point those, is not to make it so big. You've converted you know, it, It's not a. Um, um, some people will say, "Give me the, give me BABIP gap, uh, power I, and avoid K," and all of those are weighted equally in my evaluation of a player. And I go, well, no, that's not true. That, you know. I would not evaluate gap at the same level and value. A, a nine gap is not the same thing as a nine power, <laughs> right. right? In my in my brain, uh, but a nine gap is not nothing. A right. nine if gap. People are, if people are ignoring gap, right? So yes. uh, we looked at a couple power hitters that were. So who's the gentleman that hit the milestone? Whose name I can? The other the other Martinez, uh, the guy that was in Jacksonville forever. And oh yeah. Then, um, it wasn't Alfredo Martinez. No, I still don't know his Miguel name. Miguel Martinez. Uh, what was that? Yes, uh, Martinez is the name I remember. <laughs> That's fine. But the point with him and with the guy I had, Raul Hernandez, is they were both these like seven or eight contact, nine or ten power, five gap power. And that's where you see the, the, the thing you can take advantage of, right? The, that if someone else is looking at a similar player who has, say, eight gap power, you know, so you've got two players, um, seven, five, nine, seven, seven. And then you've got a player who's seven, you know, seven, 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 seven. Sure. Like, is that guy with a nine power really that much better? Because 
than the guy that's straight sevens who actually can hit some doubles and the other guy's not going to hit any, you know, it's, that's, I think that's where you see a little bit of difference there. Yeah. Um, maybe the guy and, with the nine power is better, but maybe he's not as much better as you think he is. Um, I, I like the Yamashita case because there's a guy who's making all of his above, he's become a league average, above league average hitter because of his gap in my mind. So there's a, yeah, that's a, that, that, that was what was going through my brain as I was looking at him. Fun player. Um, another, player. let me turn to a slightly different take, you know, because uh, Yamashita is a conversation about the value of defense and doubles. And we were talking a little bit about real baseball, game baseball, how we evaluate different things. Another thing that was going through my brain as I was looking at the game last night is Des Moines. You know, you look at uh, Des Moines, and I want to talk a little bit about the value of on-base percentage and defense and get your reaction to some things that I was looking at. You know, you look at Des Moines' offense, you you know, go into their game, uh, into their team page and do that info thing, and you look at, you know, where they rank in offense uh, and where they rank in pitching. And offensively, they are 10th in runs scored despite being 6th in the Frick League in home runs which I think is extremely interesting, right? They are worst in the league and next to worst in the league at batting average and on-base percentage, sixth in the league in home runs, and that equates together to scoring only 10 runs. And what was the thing? I think somebody was talking about it either on the forum or on Slack, the whole Moneyball conversation, right, where they talk about the whole, you know, they run through a whole string, you know, wins are created by runs are created by blah, 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 right? Similar, when I look at their pitching staff, I mean, it's just, it's a kind of a bloody horror show <laughs> where they rank in their pitching. But the interesting thing that I was struggling with, I went and I looked at their defense. Last time that I updated that plays above average, Des Moines was minus 57 plays above average, right? And their pitching staff right this minute, the batting average against their pitching staff is 271. I said, well, huh, that's interesting. What would happen if they had converted those 57 plays into just a league average defense? If they just had a league average defense and had zero plays above average, right? Turn 57 of those hits or not outs into outs what would their batting average against be? And so I did my quick high-level math because I'm a brainiac and I can do subtraction and division. And I said, if they had a league average defense, their batting average against would be 258. So go from 271 to 258. That, league, that defense is worth 13 points of batting average. And then I went one step further and I said, what if they had a positive defense equal to how bad their real defenses. So plus 57, if they had turned, and that's not even the top in the league, right? There are better defenses in the league. Um, if they had, if they were plus 57 plays above average, if they had an elite, uh, close to elite defense, that batting average against would be 245. And the league average is like 249 or 250 here in, in the, in the Frick. So here is a pitching staff in Des Moines who looks horrible, but if the defense was elite, it has a horrible defense. If the defense was elite, it would look a whole lot better, right? Here's an offense that is sixth in the league in home runs, but just can't get on base. So if you had a few guys that could get on base and some really good defense, this could be a totally different team. Thoughts? 
Uh, now you, that's those are all that's really interesting. Um, let's start with the pitching. You know, you mentioned that this is a horrible, horrifying looking pitching staff, but if you actually look at the starters, you know, Juan Garcia is going to give up home runs, but he's not. He's not. You know, I I would prefer him in the bullpen. I think, but he's okay. Uh, Timmy Timmy Carnes is pretty exciting. Um, and like guys like Greg Palmer and Juan Garcia and Rafael Rodriguez, they're absolutely fine back of the rotation options. There is nothing wrong with that starting rotation. The bullpen could use some work, but you know, that's, that's the last thing you do. You know, this, this has the makings of a good pitching staff and it's really remarkable how much you can sabotage your, your pitching with poor defense. If you just go through their lineup, the only players that brought a glove are Juan Mateo at first and um, Anastasio Guillen at third. There's not a single other player that even belongs in the spot that they're, they're playing defense. There's a couple that you can get away with, like, you know, Yang at second. Okay, mm-hmm. if the rest of your infield is solid, maybe. But, like, you know, they've got a shortstop who just absolutely should not be playing shortstop. They've got a center fielder who has no business being allowed to play center field, they're weak in the corners. So there's there's a reason this defense is bad. And I do feel like that's one of the like kind of first OTP shocks to the system when you start playing these games is, is realizing just how much defense matters. Now I, I'm not, you know, saying that um, Jeff doesn't doesn't already know this. It may just be that where Des Moines <laughs> is right now, he just doesn't care and he's just putting whatever is out there that matters. But there's some low-hanging fruit in terms of improving the steam right there. The place where yeah. I think it's not as easy to improve. Yeah, I mean, you're right. If they added some defenders and added some more on base percentage, they could get better. Adding on base percentage is not easy. You know, I, when I used to run those California teams um, and I had those great pitching staffs and the I would consistently hear about how, you know, you could just get a little bit more out of your offense you could have just a monster team and be like, guys, my resources are all leveraged. I want better on base percentage than I have. I would always struggle. I would always be like eighth or ninth or 10th in the league and on base percentage. And um, I would have loved to have better ones, but it is, you know, depending on how you allocate your resources on base percentage is the most expensive batting thing to add. So, and then to be able to add that and improve your defense you're talking about some of the most expensive pieces in the league, you know, guys who can defend and get on base. So, yeah, that's, and that fits into, I, I, I don't think that the issue is that Jeff doesn't care. That's not, I think he's dealing with what he had kind of the conversation we had with Nigel uh, when Jeff took over the, the uh, Des Moines team. Um, you know, he had some issues that he was having to deal with and I think he's patched things in a certain order. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he, he actually has some guys. The fact is, the Des Moines Colonels are sixth in the league in hitting home runs. No, I, I doubt that if the average general manager were to if we were put a poll up and say, how many, you know, where does Des Moines rank in home runs without looking? I don't think people would say sixth. Uh, Jeff has put together some players who can actually hit the baseball. They just can't seem to get on base right now. And I do believe that without talking to Jeff about it, I believe he made some decisions to say, I'm going to, I'm going to be okay with sacrificing defense a little bit in order to put some guys in the lineup who can actually hit. 
But really what started me was on the, you know, your point at the very beginning, what started me on this path is I looked at the information screen and I saw their pitching staff was a bloody horror. And I went, this doesn't make any sense because I know they have good pitchers. I have been paying attention to Des Moines and yeah, Greg Palmer and Timmy Carnes and uh, the Garcias and Tannen and, you know, there's guys on this team who can pitch. So that's what my brain thought was, where are they defensively? And um, it was just an intriguing exercise to walk through to see exactly how hard it is <laughs> to build a team with no holes and how big those holes can actually wind up being. Uh, it struck me. It was very interesting to me to see the, because I'd never actually done it, to do that flip the defensive, you know, how much, how much of pitching is defense and how much of defense is pitching is one of those uh, unknowable questions. But in this particular case, when you do that math, it drops to what is it? 26 points of batting average between a elite defense and a essentially bottom of the line defense. That's well, that's an interesting that number, right? The piece I'd add to this whole thing is that you, you just can't really compete with a defense this bad. Um, it's unless you are otherworldly offensively, because it's going to sabotage your pitching. There is no way to have good pitching when when your defense is this terrible because you can't strike out 100% of players. There will be balls in play. The other interesting thing is that this isn't the worst defense in the Frick. So <laughs> who is the worst defense in the Frick? Because it's impressive to me that someone is actually worse than this. And oh, I have to find out who that is so I can make fun of them. <laughs> I am a mean person. The next worst in the Frick that I see is Valencia at 51.9 plays below average. And I'm just using the in-game efficiency score to, right. to rank defenses, which I think is the best one of the in-game things. I think their zone rating is pretty jacked up. So it believes that Madison is slightly worse than Des Moines. Um, where do you have Madison? Oh, I've got Madison pretty far down there, too. They're, they would be next in line in the Frick. Okay. But at only 28 plays below average, so. That's interesting. Well, that's interesting. Has Madison dramatically changed their personnel um, from earlier in the year? Because I don't, yeah, I don't know. Just scrolling through their players, the worst defender they have is Andrew Torres's seven in left. And you could argue that um, Declan Hounsell maybe isn't a center fielder anymore with his eight outfield range, which again, it's just disgusting that eight outfield range isn't good enough to play center field. Oh, and then you've got Allende with a seven range at shortstop, even though he's rated eight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe that's where it's coming from, that these guys just aren't getting the balls. Their second baseman is only six range. Yeah, that's probably, uh, they're uh, by my place above average, Madison's infield is they just, the hole. They don't get the balls. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, well, there's a little swap. foray into the into the difference between plays above average and whatever the out of the park thing does. Yeah, I wonder why you wouldn't swap uh, Mauro Soto, who is a uh, 11 shortstop with 10 range, Salvador Allende, who is potentially elite third baseman, but doesn't have the range for shortstop anymore. That would be a yeah. kind of 
easy easy thing for Mike to do. Yeah, I don't know. Um, although, you know, Lende would have to be learning on the fly because he is not rated very well at third base right now. He'll be ugly for a few months. But heck, what does Madison have to lose this year? So. Yeah, and it's hard to say. He may actually be okay. Those The ratings are pretty good. It just depends on the player. Some players go pretty quick and some players don't. I mean, I, I know that uh, my little uh, uh, experience in moving Dong Po Thumb from shortstop to second base like the week before the playoffs, I mean, within like 10 games, he was a four or five at second base. And by the time the playoffs were over, he was a six or seven or you know something like that. So he went pretty pretty quick and I kind of expected he would because his, only because his ratings were so good to begin with. If you look at Allende's 11-10-11 uh, error arm double play, Mike, if you do this, don't blame me if it doesn't work out, but it would feel like it would go pretty quick for him and his work ethic is good. And so I, I don't, I don't know. But... Yeah. And he already has the shortstop rating. Right. And I think that's the thing that showed up maybe two or three versions ago in OOTP was that if they were already rated in a more difficult fielding position, they learned the quote unquote easier one faster. Yeah. Um, and he's a five third baseman already. So yeah, you know, he's, he's been, been playing, playing there. So I, I don't know whether that's the right thing for Mike to do or not, but it is definitely a, um, the the Madison question is, I, I think that's interesting. I'd actually need to go, you now have got me excited. <laughs> I need to go and look at the out of the park uh, rankings versus the plays above average rankings and see how they differ, right? Why they differ and things like that. That's, that is an intriguing thing for, for out of the park to rate, Mad to rate Madison worse than, than uh, Des Moines is interesting to me. Uh, specifically because, you know, as I look at plays above average, the, neither Madison's nor Des Moines' defense is particularly good by any definition. <laughs> but it seems very clear to me that Madison's is um, better. is better than Des Moines at this yeah. stage. So yeah, anyway. The last thing I think that you had brought up uh, wanting to talk about this time around was some you know, we have this upcoming move to real ratings in the off season, and you'd found a couple players, right, that you wanted to see in, in real ratings compared to what they are now. You know, and I, I could actually pick a whole bunch of them. The origin of this exercise, again, was born a day or three ago as I was sitting there watching mindless television and picking around. And, and um, I was looking at, actually, it started with Twin Cities' Brian King. As I was looking at him and the thought pattern struck, you know, he's a six six eight potential pitcher at this stage. And I know Scott has been waiting diligently for Brian King to actually develop up into his full control because he's a six six five in real, in actual ratings. But he's up and pitching now and he's doing okay. You know, I mean, he's, he's holding his own. It struck me to wonder, you know, when we flip the switch back to real ratings, what is Brian King going to look at, uh, look, going to look like, right? Six, six, eight, six, six, five. The uh, repertoire that he has, solid stamina, good intangibles. I don't know how much of this rolls into things. He's a 40, 60 overall rating the way that out of the park looks at things. I started asking myself, is he going to look better than six, six, eight? Is he going to look worse than six, six, eight? I, that's an interesting question. And so uh, then I then I started picking through several others. So we can go through a, a ton of different players, but maybe it's better just to focus on one or three or whatever. Um, what are your thoughts on Brian King? What do you think is going to happen when when uh, when we flip the switch? 
it's hard to say with him um, because his third pitch is so bad. Like if he, if that if that changeup that's so bad, it's so mediocre, right? Um, you'd think a three pitch guy with like eight kind of you know let's call let's say that curveball does flush out to a nine. Um, let's say all his pitches flush out eight nine six. You would think that that'd be better than six stuff in a absolute ratings in a real ratings world. I don't know that it'll go up. Uh, I think probably seven though, just because the change. If that was an eight changeup, you think he'd be up more in the eight, maybe even nine range. But with it, the third pitch being so mediocre for a starter, I, I wonder that he won't move a whole lot. But I don't know. Uh, he's a he's an interesting case. And the other thing you've got is you have that sixty potential. And again, we can talk about overall ratings. But the point is, is there. There is stuff that is being added up to generate that number. So uh, the fact that you would look at a guy like him with his raw ratings and think maybe 55, and then you look at the game telling you 60, makes you wonder if he is towards the high end of some of those bars rather than the low end. And that might make you think that when you go to real ratings, he'll shoot up a little bit more. But I don't know. I mean, I like Brian King. I think he will be, uh, he is, he is absolutely the type of player that, but he is absolutely one of those types of players that I want to see what happens to and, and one of the things that goes through my mind is, that, yes, that overall to potential 40, 60, I, I have said many times that I hate overall ratings, and that's being too hyperbolic, right? I get confused by overall ratings a whole bunch of times, right? Because I don't know, yes, out of the park clearly calculates up a whole bunch of things and puts things together and, and tries to give some baseballness feel to these things. You know, one of the questions I have is when we flip the switch, will we see Brian King go from a 6-6 to a 5-7 or a 6-7? Will we see that stuff actually bump up? Is it only a 6 right now because, you know, the rest of the world is so huge? Um, You know, we've got so many big stuff pitchers out there. When you go to relative, does that drop those down a little bit? His strikeout rate is not particularly high and has never been particularly high. So I don't expect it to really bump up a bunch, but I do wonder whether it will bump up a little bit because the changeup is not fully fleshed yet. That third pitch, that five, six changeup. Yes. It's kind of on the middling scale. It's not a dominating pitch. It's just these things I wonder about, you know, I don't know why I wonder about them, but I wonder about them. And I think the other guy you picked to talk about, um, Greg Palmer with Des Moines, at least in terms of stuff, is an interesting contrast, right? Because King has, at this time, his stuff is rated as six and his pitches are eight, eight and five. And Greg Palmer is, has five pitches and those are eight, 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 five, five. And his stuff is a seven. And he throws a lot yes. harder. So, uh, you know, it, it does that question of like, it could, you've got guys, one guy with six stuff and one guy with seven stuff. And when you go to real ratings, you might end up with one guy with six stuff and one guy with nine stuff, right? Like they're, they're, yes. it kind of just shows you how much is hidden in, yeah. in relative ratings. And it also, just to put a, bring a pet peeve of mine out, um, the, the pitching model to me is a pet peeve. Now, on the one side of me, I will um very firmly advocate and say you know out of the park does probably the best job i've ever seen of any tabletop game of putting forward pitches and turning them into you know you can have really interesting good conversations about them and it actually attempts to do these kinds of things on the other hand how in the world can a guy who has 
a eight, which is kind of league average or better, uh, you know, better than league average fastball, better than league average cutter, better than league average forkball, and also be able to throw in a sidecar curveball and change up at 100 miles an hour, have seven stuff. I don't understand. <laughs> well, uh, I just don't understand. <laughs> well, because we have guys, we have a hundred guys that have ten stuff. We have, yes. you, know, we're, you know, it's it's the problem is, right. is in a in a default OOTP league with those pitch ratings, he would have elite stuff. In right, and that equates to this conversation about relative ratings because if we turn relative ratings back to raw, or when we turn relative ratings back to raw, if this stuff doesn't jump up to like nine then my question really plays in because then you're looking at real numbers you know and things like that versus right now you can argue that well he's only a seven stuff because you've got lorenzo de medici out there at ninety-seven thousand, and so relatively he's you know here um yes. and and that could play because you know um palmer's strikeout rate has been growing the way you would expect a young player's strikeout rate to, to grow a bit, right? He's up to 7.5 per nine this year, which is good, not great, but good, not great. The other you thing that's, that's quite interesting when you talk about stuff and number of pitches is I'm not sure that OTP bakes in the number of pitches effect on outcomes into the stuff rating entirely. And the example I would make of that is it is difficult to find a two-pitch starter, right? That doesn't, you can do it, especially if you keep them on short innings and use them correctly. You are even commenting in the forums or on the Slack a little bit about a guide that you use. But in general, as a rule of thumb, if you don't have a third pitch, it's hard to, to make a starter out of a guy. And it does do some toggling in terms of with stuff if you set him as starter or reliever. But from a pure, let's talk baseball scouting standpoint, more pitches is more stuff. I don't think that that's baked in into the the way OTP does the stuff rating, and I'm not going to say that it's incorrect. I kind of like the idea that they leave it up to you as the talent analyzer to realize that you can't just look at the stuff rating; that you need to look at the pitches. I I, I like that to some degree, and you know, one of the things that I, because I talked to Randy so much, he's mentions of him show up in this podcast a lot. But one of the places he might be getting a little bit more, you know, we wonder, how does he get so much about his pitching? Well, if you look at his teams, it's not so much the stuff rating. He collects guys with big groups of, you know, green and blue bar pitches. Um, And, you know, some of those guys might have six stuff, but what they have six stuff and they somehow have six stuff with a bunch of blue bars. Uh, And he strikes a lot of people out that way. And it, you just kind of start to wonder, is the stuff rating really not as useful as maybe some people think it is? I mean, it's important, but there's maybe a lot more to be found in looking at individual pitch ratings. Um, yeah, than... and that gets into the my caveat of the whole thing is there is no question in my mind that sitting here on October 24th of 2020, or uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> August of 2044, <laughs> right. um, there is no question in my mind that the game itself is so much more sophisticated when it comes to the pitching model than it was, you know, uh, 25 
BBA seasons ago. It is it is much better than that. I would almost, from a aesthetic standpoint, I would almost prefer for the game not to give us the stuff rating at all and just give us the pitches. And actually, what I really prefer is for the um, for the game to give us the pitches with a kind of overall quality movement control, you know, some idea to figure out how it factors into these things and then let us do all of that itself. But I think that would break the average OOT players, OTP players preferred aesthetic. But I would break all of that having been said, yes, at the end of the day, as I look at various players and uh, Palmer and King were two of them, many of them are pitchers for me. I'm interested in, in moving this into your frame, what things you're interested in. Uh, but when I look at these guys, I'm I'm finding myself more recently looking at it. Gee, I wonder what these guys are going to look like when we do the flip. And the uh, King being uh, 40 to 60 versus Palmer being a 50 to 55 overall ratings uh, make me intrigued, make me interested. I, so, I, I'm going to be looking forward to it. What? Who are the kind of players that you look at? It's it's interesting that you are looking at pitchers primarily because I've been primarily looking at batters. I think. You will, there will be, there's a collection of guys that are like six, six, seven, six, seven, or five, six, eight, six, five, or eight, five, six, five, whatever. Those guys, those kind of middling bats, right? That are, and some of them after this switch, because they're towards the high end of the bar, are going to be like, oh, that's why that guy's good. And some of them are going to be like, do the opposite where you're like, Oh, that's now this explains why that, you know, those sixes will become fives. And some of those players you're going to see, or maybe they won't become fives. They won't necessarily go down, but they won't grow. Right. There'll be a section, a collection of guys that were high sixes or, you know, low sevens by relative ratings. Well, a low seven by relative ratings is an eight or maybe even a nine in raw ratings. Uh, we think that's the way it was when we switched to them. Um, things could have moved since then, but, you know, and like a high six might be, you know, a high seven in absolute ratings from relative to absolute. So I, I think there's a lot of those batters that are kind of that collection of middling ratings that are going to become very interesting and it'll explain a lot about their performance. You know, a particular one that I'm interested in is, uh, San Fernando's, um, star third baseman, Alex Ramirez. Um, I think a great deal, we were talking about him a little bit before the show, but I think a great deal of his value is tied up in his glove and his ability to truly switch hit. There's a lot of guys in this league that are quote-unquote switch hitters, but they're not. They're just a left-handed hitter who turns around to hit uh, left-handers, turns around to the right side and sucks at it and shouldn't be switch hitting and and should be in a platoon. But Ramirez is a rare switch hitter who is a good hitter. But I also still think that looking at his raw stats, I don't see eight win, his raw rating bars, I don't see eight win seasons out of this guy. I don't entirely know that I see too many six win seasons out of this guy. And so that leads me to believe that some of those bars, some of those sevens that he has are towards the very high end of relative ratings with that. So I kind of wonder when we turn this stuff off, will he jump a little bit and start to have some more blue bars and look interesting, you know, the, and that's, what's going to happen when we switch off relative ratings, I believe is a collection of these kind of lots of similar green bar players. Some of them will do nothing. And some of them (laughs) will start to look much more impressive than they currently look. Switching off relative ratings isn't going to do a lot for 
the guys who are already extreme blue bars. You know, the 10 isn't is going to stay a 10 or it might become an 11, but the 11 is going to stay an 11. The 13 is going to stay a 13. It's not it's already at the edge. It doesn't have anything to to gain from the way relative ratings kind of sort of tries to make things look. So, and it's the same similar with players, right? If you have let's go back to um I know his first name is Motonobu, but I forget the guy we were looking at before. Yamashita. Yamashita. He's not going to change much, right? Because he has extremes already. He has extreme contact and extreme gap and extreme AVK and extremely bad power and eye. Those probably aren't going to move much. So players like that that are a bunch of high, big bars and little bars, you're not going to learn a whole lot about, a lot about, most likely. They might shift a little bit, but it is guys like Ramirez who are these kind of green bar specials that you might learn a good deal. And so those are the, those are the types of players I'm looking at. Um, you know, there was somebody on um, Sacramento, I believe, as we were just kind of sitting here talking about this. Um, yeah, like a guy like Fernando Reyes, you know, seven six seven five six. Like, what's that going to look like? Probably not, probably not a whole lot different because he's only a 55 overall. But players like that, you know, it, they're, those are the ones I'm interested in. Um, pitching, it's interesting that you're keying in on the pitching. I've always, I've just always had a really good handle on pitching. So the switch from absolute to relative back when we did it meant almost nothing to me, even though it changed stuff. I already knew what was going on. And I think I have a pretty good idea of what guys will look like when we switch back. Could be totally wrong, though. But it really is, it's it's the same sort of thing, right? It's like all these guys that are kind of clustered in that 6-7 range will start to spread out. And so the more ratings they have in that six, seven green bar range, the more we'll find out about them, I think is kind of what we're going to see. And that, those are the, so those are the types of players I'm interested in. Yeah. A guy like Fernando Reyes is going to be interesting for a couple of different reasons in my mind, because he kind of stretches the algorithms uh, in ways that maybe others don't always think about. I don't know. You know, Reyes is a left-handed batter with huge splits in a 55 overall rating, and we've had some conversation over the past couple of uh, weeks about overall ratings and platoon splits. When we make the switch, the question that I have on Fernando Reyes is probably mostly focused on avoid Ks. The one thing that you haven't talked about with regard to hitters is the one, the real rating that we don't actually see is uh, BABIP. Right, we don't actually we don't have a bar for BABIP. We just have an indirect thing that we have to pretend that we can calculate it based on contact because we see power, we see avoid Ks, and we see contact, but not BABIP. Right. Um, and relatively, you have no idea where that really sits. And a guy like Reyes, I look at his performance, his stats output, and he's having a horrendous year, of course, at this stage at, or at least in Sacramento so far. Uh, he's only 211. Makes me go back and wonder a little bit about the, the trade. <laughs> uh, did the trade actually affect him, or is this just a matter of small sample size? And it's probably just a small sample size. Uh, but regardless, he's not been a particularly uh, useful hitter for the past two years. He's a two-war guy, 334 on base percentage. He's about a 330 on base percentage. Where you know his Where is his eye going to be? Um, I is a weird stat or a weird rating for us right now. Where is his I going to be? It's probably, I'm going to guess that relative ratings are pulling his I up a little bit. 
Uh, he does not walk a ton. <clears throat> My guess is he's probably going to be a four. But then there's gets into that platoon question, right? Because if you look at his splits, uh, he just cannot hit left-handed pitchers whatsoever. So from a value standpoint, he's got to platoon. And, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it won't change at all. I, I just, he's going to be an interesting one because again, his rating set stretches the concept of relative ratings a lot. So I, 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 that's an interesting case. I like that is, case. As you touched on the eye thing, I find that, you know, I thought about a lot of these, my general impression with relative ratings is that we're probably largely going to see increases and see very few decreases when we go back to actual ratings. But eye is interesting, you know, because as you mentioned, as we've talked about before, over the last half decade, maybe a decade or so, um, the hitters that have been coming into the league are by and large terrible at walking, just absolutely terrible. Um, I hadn't really thought about that a lot, but it's possible that those, that these five eyes are all guys with fours and threes that are actually being pulled up. And that almost makes you wonder about the guys that are already threes and twos. <laughs> how, yeah, I mean, how Yamashita, bad are they I fully expect Yamashita's uh, power and walks are two, two. It would not surprise me at all if at least one of those probably power goes to one. Yeah. Um, when we when we swap, which is totally meaningless in context of Yamashita's value. Right. Um, but in case of uh, Reyes's value, that feels different. It does because right now it looks like he has kind of a mediocre to acceptable walk rate, and it could be that he is actually poor. The the other thing that's interesting, and I can't remember about this, is when we are the overall ratings are those relative are they absolute like did they get effect are relative so we're just going to more than likely double the number of 80 grade players in the league when we turn this off or not double but massively increase right like it'll just all these guys that are quote-unquote being pulled down because they're not as good as the uber elite people you know guys that would be 80 grade in a regular OTP league, but are now being called 60 grade because we have guys who would hit 500, you know, with a yeah. 1500 OPS in a regular OTP league are getting called 80s by relative ratings. If all those 60s go back to 80s, we could just have, I mean, then the overall rating becomes even more meaningless because <laughs> half the league is 80s and you have to, which is fine, yeah. right? There's, there's objectively nothing wrong with that because you could. Yeah, there's there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? At the end of the day, we're going to have uh, it require no matter what rating system we're on, it requires general managers to understand the rating system and equate it properly into into league context and all that other good stuff. Right. Uh, we're speculating on exactly what is going to happen when we come to the raw numbers. It definitely is possible that we could see another. Uh, everything suddenly turned to bigger numbers on the top end. It could be smaller numbers on the bottom end. I, you know, we'll. I'm just intrigued. Uh, I like sitting down and looking at each player and saying, well, what's that? What's going to happen there? I don't know. Uh, probably because I'm weird, but you know, oh, man, you I'm, guys, I'm super, you guys already know all that. So <laughs> I'm super excited about it too. Well, I think we've managed to go through like almost an entire uh, hour plus conversation and not actually talk about the standings whatsoever. So let's do a real quick run through that before I, I bring us to the end here. I think, uh, going to be a fun sim we're getting down to the brass tacks trade deadline is coming up should be interesting because we've got a bunch of teams that are kind of in the mix uh last year we had kind of a quiet one i think because most 
things were kind of already decided. But in the Johnson League, we've got uh, like Rockville, New Orleans, and probably San Antonio are all pretty well seen to be locks. But you've got Brooklyn, Edmonton, Phoenix, Boise, Jacksonville, Mexico City is now back into things. I don't know what's happened with Fred there. And even theoretically, Charm City could do something, but they got a lot of runs to pull up. So those guys are all going to be looking at whether they're going to build their team or not. In the Frick League, it would seem like my own Yellow Springs and Hawaii are probably sitting pretty comfortable for at least making the uh, uh, the postseason in Long Beach. But you got Nashville, Omaha, Seattle, Chicago, Louisville, San Fernando's at four and a half games back. All of those teams could be looking at you know looking at whether they want to throw some chips into the ring. Going to be a really interesting interesting sim. Just kind of a one or two liner. What are your thoughts about? What are your thoughts as we look at this next sim or two? I don't know. It, it, it's you kind of covered all that. This is uh, you know in two more sims we're going to have a much clearer idea. I think of who's who's still in it and who's not. Um, the if and if we don't, then it's just going to be absolutely murky for the rest of the year. Unless yeah, I think it's I think it's probably going to be murky for the rest of the year. But this this is literally the one time of the year where your one of your comments of a of a few episodes before was uh, this artificial deadline for when to make your last moves. I always look at that as mostly the lead up to it is the deadline for the not to haves to kind of build their team. This is actually the only sim where it really gets down to the point of you have to make a decision. Are you going to throw all your chips in and or are you just going to let it run? And and we're going to we're going to see who who makes those decisions one way or the other. That'll be there are some good players out there that are still capable of of helping a team. Yeah, um, going to be fascinated to see which GMs decide to throw all their chips in and which ones do not. That's my one. That's my one liner. I'm I'm interested to see which GMs do what. This particular sim. And I'm interested in telling them they made the wrong choice in lengthy articles. Which is which is exactly the easiest thing to do because they're always the wrong choice until one of them works out. And right. on the yeah, end of the, the, end of the day, on my side. Yeah, at the end of the day, only a certain number of them is possible to work out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the, All righty. Well, the secret this to is... sounding smart is to pick the low-hanging fruit. There you go. If you complain about four different items and only one of them can work out, you're guaranteed to be right three out of four times. Exactly. So. All righty. This has been a fun, uh, fun conversation again, Ted. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning slash afternoon with me, and uh, look forward to getting together again next week. Yep. You've been listening to the BBA Today, a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day. Music is Bold Statement, available at fesleyandstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.